All right, all right. Can you hear me? Yes, beautiful. Okay, we will start with, um, with a prayer, and then we'll go and jump in. There is forgiveness in you that you may be feared. Psalm 130. Almighty everlasting God, who does abundantly and daily forgive all our sins, grant unto us your Holy Spirit, that he may inscribe your mercy in our hearts, in order that we, too, may willingly forgive our brethren. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hmm. This prayer is going to touch on some of the things we're talking about today. All right. Last week, we began the submission part of First Peter. And there is a lot in that. Yes, ma'am. Those are extras. They're from uh, last week. So, uh, and, but last week is this week's as well. The second page of last week's is this week. Yeah. So I have a couple of notes here. The first one uh, was the homework that somebody gave to me last or three or four weeks ago. And it had to do with the word obtain. Somebody asked, is the word obtain that we see in our Bibles in First Peter, it's all going to be First Peter, so I should just say the chapter and verse. Chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9, in our English Bibles, if you're using the ESV, both have the word obtain. And somebody raised their hand last week or three weeks ago and said, in the Greek, is it the same word? And I went and did some homework, and it's not the same word, interestingly. In Donna, you have your Bible's already open. Can I look at it real quick? Yeah. All right. So in one nine, it says, "Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, receiving back, recovering, a recompense." is how that obtain is translated. And then the other one is 3.9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. To this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. That obtain is to inherit a blessing, something that you don't deserve, something that came to you from somebody else. Obtaining a blessing. So, I don't know, I forgot who asked. person might be here, might not be here. Again, I forgot. But I did want to say that. Going to what we're talking about last week and this week. And next week. And probably the week after that. Because it's a large section in First Peter. And it has to do with submit to. And what all that means. I did my homework on also the language aspect. I don't want to spend too much time in Greek. Uh, but I wrote down how many times the verb to submit appears in First Peter, whether it has to do with humans or whether it has to do with Jesus submitting to the will of the Father. It's all one word, and it is this root here. Hypo... I mean, there are a lot of, uh, but it's hypotago, which means 
to be placed under, to submit, to, yeah, I'm gonna stick with those. There are one, two, three, four, five different times in which this verb is used by Peter. And yet last week we talked about one of them. And that is on, that's, it starts 2.13 is what we did last week. So 2.13 begins with, oh geez, I'm in James. That's why I'm not, I need to flip a couple more pages. Yeah, sorry. 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I don't want to get into the weeds too much. Maybe in 10 years when I do this First Peter study again, I'll maybe have decided that I don't like the word institution. Uh, and I covered it a little bit last week, and I don't want to get into the weeds today. We can talk about this at another time. But the word for institution is the word that's all over the New Testament that is used for creature or creation. First Peter is the only place that translates it as institution. So some commentaries go as far as to say that this verse should be translated as be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creature. Nothing to do with institutions, nothing to do with government, nothing to do with it. This is what some commentators say. The ESV chose institution, but it's the word that means creation, human creation. Are we human creations? Well, meaning that we are creations. Well, yes, we are. So we can think about that another time, but I want to move on because if you keep reading, that section, he goes to talk about the emperor and then the governors. And in no way does he say these are holy and deities, if you will. These people are gods. He doesn't say that. He says, well, they are human beings, but we honor them. So is he saying be subject to every human creature because these are human creatures? Or is he saying be subject to every human institution because these people are in an institution of government? At the end of the day, it, they do, it, you do look at things differently depending on how you translate those two things. But we have to move on. We can't come back to it. If you say that's really interesting, we could come back to it at a later point in this, in this class. But I'm going to keep chugging along to the second, be subject to, which then is at 2.18. That's what I want to touch on today. 2.18 is the second be subject to. Before we jump in, let's jump in the text. I'm doing too many before we jump in. So let's start. I'm going to read straight through, and you're going to think, listen and think about, can't be that simple. Who are these people? I'm the guy who has the letter. You are the congregation. We are just receiving Peter's letter. I have it. We're very excited. Peter's a big deal. We know he's a big deal, and he's the letter. Who are you? If very specifically, who's sitting in front of the, of the pastor or the reader of the letter? The what does the congregation look like? Think about 
first century Christianity. Masters, slaves, rich people, poor people. Because in Christ there is neither slave nor free or rich or poor or Jew or Greek or male or female. So all of you, there's all of these people in here as this letter is being read. And their exiles and sojourners. What has Peter already told them at this point? The memorable Peter phrases that we've read. Before 2.18. Uh, yeah, before 2.18. What has he already said? In chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Huh? Holy people. Somebody who's never been called holy in their life is now being called holy. Think about these things. People who are exiles are now suddenly being called a holy nation. A slave who doesn't have citizenship to anywhere is being called a chosen race. This is what you are listening to as you're sitting in this congregation, listening to this. So you can't start with servants be subject to your masters. You have to go back and say, what did they listen to beforehand already? A servant who's never been called a citizen of anything, or holy, or loved, has now listened to these things sitting next to a master, sitting next to a very rich person, sitting next to somebody perhaps even in a worse condition than they are. Again, congregations were very diverse in the first century. So let's jump in. 2.18. Servants. I will have to make a note right here. That's the only note I'll make. The word for servants here is not doulos. It's not slave. But it is house servant. It's a servant that you'd find in the home. Not a servant necessarily that you'd find in the field. Does that make a difference? Maybe. It makes a difference that we know better what the landscape is. That maybe in these congregations there were more house slaves than field slaves. That's the assumptions we could make. But these are, the word is not doulos. It is oiketai. Interesting. Hmm. So oiketai comes from the word Oikos, if you had, Milan and I were talking about oikos the other day, because there's a what named after it? A yogurt, and it's a Greek yogurt. And oikos means, well, what kind of slave did I say it was? That's what it means. Oikos means household in Greek. Household yogurt. There you go. So oikotai are the slaves in the home, not the slaves in the field. Just a little note. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because of Christ, also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps, who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's as much as the text that we're going to do today. What are some things that you caught? I want some knee-jerk reactions to these verses that we just read from 18 to 25. I was thinking um, they're being compared to Christ. What else? Suffer. To endure, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, doing good, suffering, enduring. We've heard this before, right? Oh, I don't have a, word, a single word for it. But verse 19, this is a gracious thing. This when mindful of God. You could look at this. We are in the 21st century. You could look at the New Testament and the Old Testament in two ways. Or maybe th more than that, but I'm going to simplify it. You could say, why doesn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, and the gang, why do they not call for a revolution to end slavery once and for all? He's actually giving instructions to slaves rather than saying, this is bad and sinful, and now you should rise up against your masters. Right. So, what would have happened if that, if, let's just say Paul and Peter, if they would have written that? Rise up? Yes. Um, we probably wouldn't be here. You'd either have a church that was wiped out immediately, or the alternative is you'd have Peter and Paul writing specifically to these people, giving them a place, comparing them to Christ, and saying, hold on tight. In the long run, everything's going to be okay. Because the one who judges justly will be the one who's going to make all things right. 
So it's very easy for us in 2023 say Paul and Peter are cowards. Why doesn't he just say free all the slaves? Slaves kill your masters. Imagine what that would have done to the church of Christ. Just realistically. We don't need to imagine if. Just see other movements that have tried to, not Christian movements, just political movements, where a small group of people go and try to rebel against a very majority, a majority culture. See what happens to that small group of people. That wouldn't have been just practically, it wouldn't have been a smart thing. So for us to read this today and say, of course you should have called for the revolt of slaves. Not smart. So what's the alternative? To forget that they exist, like everybody else did? Or to actually address them as people who were never addressed as people before? You can view it on those two, at least those two, eyes. You could say Paul and Peter didn't write enough, or you could say they're writing to people who are usually not even written to. They are considering people that were never really considered before. These are the people that are being compared to Christ. This is very important. This is a, a key passage. If you lose this compared to Christ, you lose sight of, of this section of the text because it's the only specific part where a group of people is compared to Jesus. He doesn't say it to the women. He doesn't say it to the men. Specifically, the group of men. He doesn't say it to the rich. He doesn't say it to the poor freedman. He says it to the servants. That is very interesting. Who else writes about Jesus as servant? Remember that? Isaiah is the suffering servant. There's another one. I, I'm going to come to you. There's a, another one here that I wrote down, and it's Paul talking about Jesus being in the form of a servant. Remember that? That's Philippians 2.7. Can anybody quickly just flip to Philippians 2.7? Just a few books to your left. Anybody have that text right in front of them? So made himself nothing, is that it? Yes, go ahead. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Obedient to death. Nobody else was called to do that in Roman culture except... No. Who was obedient to death? Jesus. No. Who's he being compared to? A what? A slave. You're owned by somebody, and you're obedient to them till death. Who do you think dies first in, in, in an attack? Somebody's attacking your house. Obedient to death. And Paul is not talking about slaves in that passage. He's talking about Jesus himself. 
So Paul uses this language with respect to his letter in abstract terms. Now Peter comes very real, boots on the ground, and says, I'm talking to you slaves, talking to you servants. He's looking in their eyes, the reader of this letter to the congregation, is looking and seeing servants and saying, guess what? Same, same. We have no idea how that would feel. We could try to imagine in our hearts, we could get goosebumps listening to this, but in actually be in the congregation as a servant with no rights, with no freedoms, and then listening to you being compared to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's pretty amazing. Right. You were going to say something, Mrs. Schlesman. I was only going to say something similar, you know, back in what we just read. Uh, he also is showing them, not just saying do it, but here's how you do it and why. You right. love the brotherhood of Christ. You respect one another. You endure these things, you know. So he's given them kind of a toolkit, if, if you will, to move through what might be considered difficult right. to do yeah. with the hope that, you know, of the reward. Right. Yeah. Yes. One more word about servants in this time period. I don't recommend the HBO series Rome for sensitive viewers or for anybody on the other hand. But having watched it, you get a very good picture of what um, Roman slavery was like to house servants. These people, a lot of times, were the most trustworthy people in the house. Some commentators say that they were, a lot of them were doctors and lawyers and teachers because what were the rich owners doing? Nothing at times, just making decisions. So you have all of these people who are actually very well respected. Is this the case for everybody? Absolutely not. Is this the case for a lot of servants? Yes. That they were actually part of a respected group of people. Now, of course, the owner could do absolutely he wanted with them, and he would not be punished at all, the owner. These people had no, they, had no, they could not have any property themselves. They could not even legally marry. Now, if they had a child, who would the child's, the child would belong to the master. So, of course, there, it's, very, it's not as clear-cut as we can just look back to 200 years ago in the U.S. and say this is exactly how it was in Rome. Not really. A lot of times these people would make very important decisions in the household in that period of time. But, again, they were citizens of nowhere. They were considered like a tool, a very important tool in a lot of households, but a tool. You could get rid of one and get another one, get rid of one, get another one. Again, we talked about this last week. Rome is conquering everywhere at this time. And what do we do with all these people that we uh, now have under our possession? Well, let's bring them back into town and sell them. So sometimes they're very cheap because you get millions of them. There are some estimates that there are 60 million servants, slaves in Rome at this time. So you have a lot of them. The price is probably not going to be a lot. You get one for your house. So that's just the reality. 
of what's going on in this letter, who he's talking to. I do want to read very quickly one of, uh, this is one, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is just a chapter of First Clement. First Clement is not in scriptures. Uh, however, it is a very early letter right after, uh, during the early church. So this is like years after these letters were written. There's very good um, evidence of that. He's talking about examples of love in the Christian congregation. To bring forward some examples from among the heathen, many kings and princes in times of pestilence, when they had been instructed by an oracle, have given themselves up to death in order that by their own blood they might deliver their fellow citizens from destruction. Many have gone forth from their own cities so that sedition may be brought to an end within them. We know many amongst ourselves, now he's talking to Christians, we know many amongst ourselves who had given themselves up to bonds, to slavery, that with the price which they received for themselves, they might provide food for others. Many women also, being strengthened by the grace of God, have performed numerous manly exploits. The blessed Judith, when her city was besieged, asked the elders permission to go forth into the camp of the strangers. And exposing herself to danger, she went out for the love for which she bare to her country, and the people then besieged. And the Lord delivered Holofernes into the hands of a woman. Humility. The rest is, doesn't apply anymore to the beginning, but that line is what I want to read to you. Many, we know many amongst ourselves who have given themselves up to bonds in order that the money they get for selling themselves, they might buy food for others. First Clement. He knew what was going on. This was during this time. This was not more than 50 years after this letter was written. He's writing this. We know many Christians who sell themselves so they can support other people who are in need. Now, with this view of servanthood, what does servanthood look like in Rome, right? Is it absolutely terrible conditions? Maybe not. There's a lot that actually says that many Servants in these households, servants, were better off than poor freed men and women in terms of having a house to live in. So this is a picture of who Peter is talking to here. Let's look at this. We talked about some of this already. It is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endured sorrows while suffering unjustly. If you are beaten for it, if you are beaten for your sin, you gain nothing. But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. And this is a gracious thing. So in the next point he talks about in 2e, the suffering of Christ. He left an example to all who suffer, but here especially to servants. 
He was sinless and perfect, yet he suffered. And he was faithful to the one who judges that justly, who will justly judge. That's how I wrote it. In point two, God is not blind to our sufferings, especially the suffering caused by others. However, he is not a God who calls on us to be vengeful. We see this all over the place in the Old Testament. People who try to avenge what happened to them. And we see how God responds. But to trust him to take care of it. We see this all over the Psalms, especially David, talking about how angry he is with his enemies, or how his enemies are going to get him. Um, and who does he call on to take care of that? In the Reformation, not Reformation, yeah, Reforma uh, Reformation Day that we celebrated a couple of weeks ago, the reading was from John. And John's reading, anybody remember? It's always the same one. Anybody know what the gospel reading for Reformation Day is? has to do with this stuff. The Jews look at Jesus and they say, we have never been slaves. slaves. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, what's the actual line? Let me get this right. First, he says the truth. Well, um, he says it twice. He says, the Son will set you free and the truth will set you free, which is the same thing, because Jesus is the truth. So if Jesus is talking in this way of being set free, freedom, free from our bonds, free from our sins, free from what holds us down, how does he want actual servants to understand this freedom? What kind of freedom are we talking about? John the Baptist is in jail. And John the Baptist says, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was going to come and proclaim liberty to thee. And I'm still a captive. Is this the real Messiah? He says, yes, it is. Right? Jesus says to John the Baptist's disciples, go and see everything I'm doing and then go back and tell John. And John faithfully dies without his head. So what kind of liberty did John have? What kind of freedom is Jesus talking about in chapter 8? In John chapter 8. And what kind of freedom are these slaves to have? Because we know Peter already talked about freedom before. He says, if you just go back a few lines, we started at verse 18. If you go two verses before in 2.16, somebody read that to me. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So you think that he asked, whoever was reading this letter to the congregation, asked the servants to leave for this to be read? And then after he talked about that, well, now you can come in and listen to the rest of the letter right not the case live as free people and the servants are sitting and saying what i don't know what that is what is living as a free 
person. But keep going, Martha. But using your freedom. Live as servants of God. To live as servants of God. Peter is not calling for an abolition of slavery physically. He's talking about in here and in here. And for free people like we are, it's very easy to criticize that. But think about Christians who are in similar situations today as the minority. Where is Christ for them? Is, uh, can they go out and proclaim all these things freely? Or is it something yet still internal in their thoughts and in their heart? And they're just living as Christians do, but with all these limitations, physical limitations put upon them, still exist today. What is beautiful here having to do with this, is that Peter is not satisfied with saying, see what Christ suffered, you're just like him. He, doesn't, he uses this now to preach, and Peter does this throughout this very short letter. Now he's going to say, I'm going to remind you, I've already told you what Christ did in the beginning of the letter, I already told you what he did a few verses ago, now I'm going to tell you what he did again. He uses this now to talk about Christ's actions. What did Christ actually do for sinners? Christ also suffered for you. An example. You might follow in his footsteps. So here he's talking about, which is another interesting way, uh, way that he's talking about. Is he talking about literally following in Christ's footsteps? Literally, can they follow Christ's footsteps? No, they can't because Christ has died and ascended into heaven. And two, even if they could, even if Christ was alive, could they follow in Christ's footsteps? No, because they can't leave. Right? So he's giving them another paradigm to be Christians. I can't, there are many things I cannot do, but there are things that I can as a Christian including be a disciple of Christ, following in his footsteps. Now he goes completely into the, here's Christ, and here's what he did for you. Now, here's what you can make a decision and say, he's not talking to me, because remember he said servants. So is he going to talk about what Christ did for the servants? Or is he now going to be talking to everybody, what Christ did for everybody in the room? When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he, con he continued entrusting himself. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Who's our sins? Just the servant's sins? Because that's how he started this section? Or is he now talking to every single person? And what does that actually mean for every other person in the room? All the same. All the same. If you're not a servant in the room and saying, see, I don't have these sins like these servants do because he's talking to the servants. Or it can pierce your heart and say, you know what? There's not much difference between us and them. He himself bore our sins that we might die to sin. 
By his wounds, you have been healed. Who has been healed? The servants? Or everybody? For you, servants or everybody who were straying like sheep. Right? That's in the Old Testament. For we, like sheep, have gone astray. Eh, eh, eh. Right? Handles Messiah. Everybody. But you now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So who is Jesus shepherding? And who is he overseeing? Pastor, you are time. Yes, thank you. But who is he, who's, be, who's being overseen here and shepherded? And who's in the church? All of these Christians. Everybody. So you can either read this section saying, look how mean Peter is, not abolishing servanthood, uh, slavery. Or you could say, he is putting everybody in the same pot. And when he talks about Christ dying for you in his wounds, healing you, he starts with servants and let the reader understand. Right? Because if you're a master, if you're a very rich woman or a very rich man sitting here, and he's talking to the servants, now he starts talking about Christ suddenly for you, now you're a servant too. Because this is very interesting. He uses the word overseer, episkopos. Even if you're a master, there's an overseer above you. doesn't matter how rich you are. If you're a slave, there's an overseer. And it's the overseer of your souls, the bishop of your souls, right? The word episkopos is the, gets translated in many ways, superintendent overseer, uh, inspector, bishop, as I said before, of your souls. Everybody's souls here. doesn't matter if you're a servant or not. So, Peter is speaking to a church that will suffer tremendously years after this is written. Right now, if you remember uh, the first or second um, class that we had here, we talked about how this church is not really suffering much official persecution that he's talking to. They're just sort of, it's starting to warm up. But there's no official government persecution of Christians who he's talking to. So, but, so he sees the reality of what's going on with these people around him. Either he writes to that reality or he risks the lives of these Christians. So he chooses to do the former. And it's a wonderful thing because here we are, as somebody said before. Any final thoughts? We, uh, we didn't get through the uh, handout, and we won't, because I think I've said a lot, and I think a lot has been said already. I don't think we need to get to the bottom. I think you should look at it, especially the three quotes in the bottom. The three quotes are got from the uh, Ancient Christian Commentary series. But we did talk about everything that's on the sheet, even if it's not in the order that I uh, looked at it. But I would want you to look at it, especially, again, in the bottom. Any final words before we, we get moving? Next week, well, I'll give this time. Anything? All right. Next week, he talks about wives of unbelieving husbands, specifically, and how they should act.
and that's relevant in a lot of times and places. And then he talks about angels and authorities being subject to Jesus. Verse uh, 5, 3.22. So we're going to talk about what all that means, too. So that's chapter 3, and there's suffering comes back, too. Suffering's all over the place. Uh, Emma mentioned suffering before called to suffer, but keeps coming back in Peter. I want us just to think about that, the reality of that. All right, let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.